Hey, what's up, Expositors? Uh, welcome to episode 28 of the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is an important episode because we're going to hear from Pastor Nick Cady, and he has some important stuff for us to learn about the importance of not being boring. Um, in, in this message, he talks about how it's quite possible to preach a doctrinally accurate sermon, but also at the same time, have it be a crushingly boring sermon. So I think we know what it's like to hear boring preaching. And for a lot of you, you've preached boring sermons. So how can you avoid that? So during this, um, this lecture, this talk that he gave in his home state of Colorado, Nick talks about that to preach a boring sermon is an act of failure to love, and that if we want to love God and love people, then we'll do all that we can to have compelling, interesting, and well-thought-out sermons in order to serve God and serve people as best as possible. So I know you're going to enjoy it. It's a very practical episode. Um, Be sure to listen at the end uh, because I've got another review to read out. I've got more stickers to give out and (laughs) you'll hear from me at the end of this episode. But enough of me. Let's hear from Nick Cady. Good. I, you know, I just got to say, you know, I was standing there worshiping and just having this thought, like, what a, what a cool thing this is to have you guys here who have a heart to uh, speak God's word to other people and share it with them and do it well and do it effectively. And you want to get trained for that. That's a noble desire. And so I just want to commend you for that. And I'm so glad you're here. And just what an awesome thing this Expositors Collective is. And so I'm glad to be a part of it. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Cady. I pastor up in Longmont. I like to think, you know, Nate kept saying he was in Vail, if you know where Nate's church is. He's kind of like in Vail the same way I'm in Boulder, and I like to tell people I'm in Boulder because it's a little bit cooler than Longmont. Uh, That's kind of our MO in Longmont, but uh, that's where I'm at. So uh, I'm going to be speaking on the topic of homiletics, and really what, what we've been talking about so far is giving you guys a lot of tools. So I want you to see this as really building upon everything that's been said so far, um, this is one more tool in your toolbox. So every, this in no way negates anything it's been saying. In fact, it really just is like everything that was said is great. And now add this piece and, the, and to, for the goal of making it even more effective. So let's talk about what homiletics is. But first, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have um, to focus on this and to receive training and build each other up and sharpen each other and, and push back and pull and, and get these training and how to bring your word into this world in a way that's effective and that touches people's hearts and minds. Lord, we pray that you'd use these things in our lives for the good of people and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard a sermon that was doctrinally correct, but yet it was so boring that it made you want to cry. Like, anybody? Maybe you, can, maybe you were the one who preached that sermon. I certainly have preached 
one or two of those sermons before myself. Uh, it's doctrinally correct, but so boring that it made you want to cry. And, you know, it's almost like you're sitting there and you're thinking, the things that he's saying are all correct, but yet I can't wait for him to stop talking. Like, I really, and I feel guilty about it because it's the word of God. And what kind of monster doesn't like to listen to the word of God, right? Like, what kind of terrible person am I? But yet, uh, I, even though I feel guilty, I just want this person to stop, even though what they're saying is good and I can nod my head. Uh, it's just so painfully boring, and I can't wait for it to be over. Why is that? What makes a sermon that boring, even if, it's, even if everything they're saying is accurate and, and correct? Uh, maybe it's the presentation. Sometimes it is the presentation, right? Like, I've known people who are, um, you know, they're a standing, talking person, and they don't even try to make it more interesting that they just are totally monotone. But I think more often the case when, when a sermon is doctrinally accurate and yet crushingly boring, more often the case is the reason is it's because they don't help you to understand why what they're saying matters. Why does it matter to you? Nate kind of touched on this a little bit. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. See, when it comes to preaching and teaching the Bible, we have an inherent problem. We have an inherent difficulty or maybe a challenge more than a problem. But what well, we can call it all of those things, a problem, a difficulty, a challenge. And that is this, that we have this book that is 2,000 years old written by, you know, farmers, shepherds, uh, Middle Eastern people who lived 2,000 years ago in a foreign country who spoke a language that we don't speak, who dealt with things that are very different than the things that we deal with today. This book comes from a very different world than the one we live in. In fact, you could say that there's a massive gap, a chasm between that world and the world we live in today. And so the question is, how do we take this ancient book and, and these words that are in it, written by Middle Eastern shepherds and, and fishermen, and how do we apply it to IT specialists and um, you know, nurses and computer programmers today in the 21st century? And essentially what we have to do, the challenge before us is that we have to create a bridge from that world to this world. We have to create a bridge from the scriptures to the modern hearer uh, in our day and age, in our modern culture. And that's what homiletics is all about. Homiletics is the art of preaching. And preaching is an art. I uh, have a couple artists in our church in Longmont. One is a landscape artist, very talented. And, you know, we often have discussions about this, how, you know, preaching, there's an art to it. It's an, it's an art form. You're crafting something. And, uh, and so the question with homiletics, it's all about this question, how can we preach effectively? How can we preach effectively? Because certainly whenever we preach, we have a goal. Even if it's not explicitly stated, even if it's not explicitly thought out, but we have a goal. And I think this has been touched on a little bit already, but it's worth asking yourself that question. What is your goal when you are preaching? What are, why are you doing this? What are you after? What is the purpose of this? What are you trying to accomplish when you stand up somewhere in front of people and, and you open the scriptures? If what you're after is more than just having people be impressed with your knowledge and your speaking abilities, which I, I absolutely hope and trust that it is more than that. If, if your hope is actually to do something greater, which is to bring glory to God and be used by him to bring his word to people so that they can be transformed by it, then by necessity, that will have implications for how you present the message, how you speak, how you write the message and how you present it, right? So let's talk about this. Let's talk about compelling versus manipulating. Compelling versus manipulating. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing the Corinthians 
And he's writing to them about the incredible hope that we have in the gospel. It is a hope which enables us to live free from the fear of death. Because in the gospel, we know that eternal life awaits us because of what Jesus has done for us. But then Paul reminds us and his his original readers as well. He reminds them that the reason why God has left us here on earth is because he wants to give us his mission. He has given us his mission. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he says, therefore, because we've received this mission, because we have this hope of eternal life, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade others. We seek to persuade others. Now, what do we seek to persuade them to do? He says that if you go down to verse 20, he says, it is as if God is making his appeal through us. We implore you. So consider those two words, persuade and implore. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So he is seeking to persuade people, to compel people, and he's wanting to persuade them and compel them to do something, which is, in this case, to receive the gospel. Another example, the Apostle John, at the end of the Gospel of John, he kind of lays all his cards on the table. He says, look, full disclosure, there were a lot of other things that Jesus did that I didn't write about in this book. These things that I wrote, I wrote for a purpose, and the purpose was so that you would read them and so that you would believe, and by believing, you would have eternal life. In other words, he's saying he had what we, what we call, in Greek, it's called a telos. It's a, it's a goal. It's an objective. It's something that you're after. It's an aim that you have in doing what you're doing. His purpose in writing what he did in the way that he did it was to compel people and persuade them to do something. In that case, it was to believe. Now, there's a difference between compelling and manipulating, right? So there's a difference between compelling and manipulating. In no way do we ever seek to be manipulative. And this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. He talks about the difference between compelling and manipulating. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I didn't try to manipulate you intellectually or emotionally by using rhetorical techniques that would, you know, pull on heartstrings or convince you to do something in a manipulative way. I only sought to preach Christ crucified with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So what does that mean? And this is the big question of homiletics. How do we do those two things? How do we preach in a way that is compelling and persuades people to respond in a certain way and yet is not manipulative? And the way we do that is through good expository preaching. This is why expository preaching is, is so important. Now, as David said earlier, David talked about how expository preaching it essentially means to expose what is in the text, to let the text speak for itself and to reveal what is there in the text. I like how John Stott put it. I've got a quote from John Stott. He says, the skillful expositor allows the text to open itself up before our eyes like a rose unfolding to the morning sun and displaying its previously hidden beauty. So in other words, if a text brings up a topic, your job as an expositor is to help people to see it. Help them to see it and not only to see it and understand it, but here's the other thing. To understand why it's not only true, but why it absolutely matters for them. That's key. Not only true, but why does it matter for them? Because here's the thing. The word of God is compelling. The word of God is compelling if it's properly understood. And that's the goal is to help people to see it so that they will understand why it is so absolutely compelling and riveting. See, there's nothing boring about the Bible. It's absolutely riveting. And our job, and I want to make this very clear, our job is not to make the Bible seem interesting. 
It is not to make the Bible seem interesting. Our job is to help people understand it so that they see and not only see, but they feel what it, why what it is saying is compelling because it is. See, if, it's only if we do that that we are truly doing the scriptures justice. And I would say as a, as a Bible teacher, this is always in the back of my mind. I want to do it justice. I want to reveal what's in the scripture and help people to see it and feel it and understand it in the way that it was meant to be seen and felt and understood. It's only if we do that that we are really helping people to understand what's in the scriptures. In other words, if I preach a boring message, it's not because the Bible was boring. It's because I was boring. In other words, I took something that was absolutely riveting, the most compelling thing in the world, but I haven't helped people to see it for what it truly is. I haven't helped people to really understand why it matters for them and for their life. So our goal is to help people see and to feel and to understand the badness of sin, to see and feel and understand the hopelessness of the curse and the goodness of the gospel and the greatness of Jesus so that they are compelled to action. So they see Jesus as the most beautiful, most desirable, most wonderful, most valuable treasure, which he absolutely already is. See, here's the thing I was thinking about. I don't think we can actually overdo it when it comes to presenting Jesus as glorious. I mean, think about that. I would almost dare you to try, right? Like, do you think you could ever proclaim Jesus as so great, so glorious, so desirable that Jesus would be like, all right, like, I mean, I know that I'm I'm great and all, but I don't know if I'm that great. Like, Go ahead, try. I dare you. I don't think you could ever do it. I think it's impossible. Our challenge is rather, our challenge is to present him in any way that that even comes close to showing how great he truly is. To present the gospel in a way that helps people to catch a glimpse of the glory of how great it is and how great Jesus is. Augustine was the first Christian preacher to write a preaching manual. In other words, a a guide on homiletics. And he wrote uh, this guide on homiletics as part of another book that he wrote. Um, But here's what he said in his manual on homiletics and, and his guide to preaching. He said that the duty of a preacher is not only to instruct and to teach, but it is to rivet and delight. The job of a preacher is not only to instruct and teach, but it is to rivet and delight, and it is to stir and to move people to action. So the goal of preaching is not only to pass on information about the Bible, it is to affect the beliefs, the actions, and the emotions of those who are listening. In other words, unless we do that, that is the only way that we can reshape, that we can bring the gospel so the gospel can reshape people's hearts. We want to change what they fundamentally hope in. We want to change what they, uh, what they look to, what they love. You know, Augustine said another thing about love. He said, what defines a person is what they love. Therefore, if you want to change a person, the way to change a person is to change what they love. Okay, so we want to help the, bring the gospel in such a way that it changes what they fundamentally love, what they fundamentally hope in, what they fundamentally put their faith in. And that goal of preaching in this way and preaching in a way that affects people in this way absolutely has implications for how we speak and how we craft our messages. Compelling preaching is born out of two loves. On the one hand, love for the word of God, and on the other hand, love for the people to whom we are speaking. Love for the word of God and love for the people whom we are speaking to. And so we don't just want our sermons to be informative lectures or informative teachings. Our desire is to go beyond that. 
where our, our desire is to bring the gospel into people's lives so it can reshape their hearts and their minds so that they can see Jesus as the great savior he truly is and how greatly they need him so that they will surrender their lives and praise him. Now, the question is, how do we do that? I'm going to give you one tool that I've found to be particularly useful, okay? One of the most powerful ways that I've found to do this in homiletics is by tapping into the power of narrative. So the power of narrative in homiletics. That's something I'd like to talk about for just a minute. I had a friend, a good friend of mine, and um, when I think about sermons that are doctrinally accurate and yet painfully boring— I think, first of all, of myself, but secondly, I think of this friend of mine, and I do so with a lot of love in my heart. Uh, I hope you feel that. But uh, for, for years, for every Sunday, he would teach for 90 minutes, and people would complain, as you might expect. Um, and his response was to say, hey, look, this is the word of God. If you don't like it, that's your problem. If you can't handle 90 minutes, then there's something wrong with you. And besides, he said... Um, these same people who are complaining about the sermons being too long, these are the same people who go out, you know, Sunday afternoon to the movies and they watch a three-hour movie. And if they can sit for a three-hour movie, well, then why can't they sit for a 90-minute sermon? Now, to be fair to everyone, we have to admit his sermons were not truly 90 minutes of the Word of God. I mean, it's probably five minutes of the Word of God and 85 minutes of commentary. But also, more importantly, what I tried to help my friend understand is that there's a pretty big difference between him teaching on a Sunday morning and a big Hollywood production, right? Like in Hollywood productions, there are like fights, there are people kissing each other, right? There are car crashes, gun battles, and he is a standing, talking person in a hot room, right? So furthermore, there are some other differences between my friend and the movies. Uh, and that is this, that movies have plot lines uh, and, and his sermons did not. Okay? And so the plot line of a movie, the reason it's able to hold your attention for three hours is because it has a progression. It has a progression and it's moving towards something from somewhere towards something. So the way that a good story keeps your attention is not just through explosions and special effects. The way that a good story keeps your attention is that it has a certain pattern and a plot line that almost all stories follow. Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the power and the purpose of story and narrative in homiletics. I have Amazon Prime. Any of you guys have Amazon Prime? Do you know what the first rule of Fight Club is? Never talk about Fight Club. But you know what the first rule of Amazon Prime is? always talk about Amazon Prime. And I don't mind that because I remember the days when I used, do you remember this? Like you used to have to wait five days to get your stuff in the mail. Like what was that? And then like you had to spend a minimum amount just to get the free shipping. So I don't miss the days before Amazon Prime. But you know, the same rule that applies to Amazon Prime also applies to things like being a vegan and doing CrossFit. Like have you ever met somebody and like after you've known them for a while, you're like, oh, I had no idea that you do CrossFit. Of course you haven't. Because if anybody does CrossFit, they talk about it all the time. It's the first rule of CrossFit. Always talk about CrossFit. Same with being a vegan. You never meet a person who's a vegan. I had no idea you were a vegan. Well, no, you, you knew they were a vegan after you met them for about 15 seconds. So 
The other day, I was on Amazon Prime Video, and they just posted every episode of House MD. You guys remember this show? I realize I am dating myself with all of my references, okay? So uh, House MD, and if you've ever watched House, right, which I did, I just watched a whole bunch of it, and you'll notice this thing, which is kind of common in a lot of series, and that is that every episode follows the exact same pattern. It's just kind of plug and play, where they just kind of have the same pattern, they just plug in different details, and it's the same episode. It's just different. You know, like before it was a blonde girl, now it's a red-haired girl. And before she had dermatitis, now she has encephalitis. And it's always encephalitis. So, and here's what, here's the, here's the progression of a House MD episode, every single House MD episode, okay? Uh, Somebody's doing something normal, and then they start to feel a little bit sick, and then they collapse, and they get taken into the hospital. And then House and his team get together, and he says some really crabby things, and they try to figure out what's wrong and they always think it's encephalitis and it never is and then the problem gets worse and worse and the person's about to die and then all of a sudden House has this revelation and then they heal the person and everything's good and then there's some implications for the hospital or for that person's life or for somebody else in the show. That same formula is followed in every single episode of every single TV series. It's followed in just basically every movie and every book and every story that exists. And yet, isn't it interesting that even though we know kind of already from the outset of the show, we know what's going to happen, and yet we're still tuning in. We're still watching. We're still binge watching, and we just cannot seem to get enough. Every episode of every show, every movie, they all kind of follow the same progression, and we already kind of know what's going to happen by the, even just starting out. And yet we keep watching. Now, why is that? Why do we crave stories? I believe the reason we crave stories is because the true story of the world is written on our hearts, the story of the gospel, God's story. But for that reason, stories are powerful, and they're powerful teaching tools, and stories resonate with us. We remember stories. Okay, so all stories follow the same basic structure. I've got a slide here for you. Uh, All stories follow the same basic structure. I'm sure it'll be up there soon. First, you are presented with the setting, which is kind of the way that things should be. Then you're introduced to the tension. That's the problem, the conflict, uh, the way, the thing that comes in and disrupts everything. And then that problem builds and builds until everything seems hopeless. And that is called full conflict. But but finally, when it it seems that all hope is lost and and, and nothing's going to work out and, and Every hope is lost, right? Then comes the resolution. But the resolution itself is not the end of the story. There are also consequences, which are the result of what happened. Now think about every movie you've ever seen, and it follows that plot line. If there's no conflict, it's not a story. If there's no resolution, then it's not a story, or at least it's not a finished story. Now, sometimes my kids, I have small kids, and sometimes they'll ask me to make up a story on the spot. I'm not very good at it, but here's the thing, that sometimes where I've failed in a story is I'll just make some stuff up and you know, just be a series of events or some facts about a person. And my kids will tell me that that was either that they'll tell me that wasn't even a story or they'll tell me that was a very boring story. And they're right. And the reason is because unless there is a conflict There is no story. Unless there's a resolution, then the story isn't over. You see, unless there's a problem that somehow gets resolved, then it's not a story and it's not compelling. That's why every show you watch follows this same progression. Because unless there's a problem that somehow gets resolved, it's not a story. 
Now, one of the things I always look for when I'm preparing a message, or I've had guys come to me and they'll, you know, they're going to teach and I'm helping them craft their message. This is one of the very first things I look for. I say, okay, even if what you're saying is true, you need to tell me why I should care. And I want, to not, I want them to not only show you or show anybody what the Bible says, but I, you have to also show them why it matters, why it matters. In order to do that, one of the key factors is you have to show them that there is a problem and the solution to that problem is ultimately found in Jesus. He is the answer to every riddle and the solution to the problems. And so one of the most effective ways to craft a message that is compelling, a message that will help to restructure and to challenge people's hearts and minds and to challenge what they believe in and what they trust in and where they find their their fundamental value and identity. One of the ways to do that most effectively is by following the same basic structure of a narrative and including this in your message. You, You begin by showing people that there is a problem, that there is a problem that something is not right in the world. Something is wrong. And then you build on that. And you you dig deeper and you kind of twist that a little bit more, right? And you bring it into full conflict to to the point where you show them how that problem is actually much bigger than they've ever realized that it is. And it's more serious than they've ever thought. And in fact, it is absolutely going to destroy them. And you bring them to the precipice, to the brink of hopelessness. And then you get to bring them and show them Jesus. You get to show them, you, you know, you show them that even, even this, you, sh- you want to show them that the ways that they've been trying to fix that problem are not fixing it. In fact, they're probably making it worse. And actually now they are part of the problem. And then once you brought them to the precipice of hopelessness, the point of absolute despair, then you point them to Jesus. It makes him compelling. And you show them how Jesus is the remedy, the only remedy and the perfect remedy. And finally, you show them, after you've done that, you show them then, finally, the consequences of what Jesus has done, the consequences of what he did in that situation. Because Jesus did this for you, here's what this means now for your life moving forward. Now, think about this. This same pattern is used by Paul the Apostle quite a bit in the epistles. He used it in Romans chapters 1 through 3. He uses it, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2. In other words, he shows us that there's a problem. God is righteous, but we are not. And the reason that's a problem is because God, as the righteous judge, as a holy God, he is obligated to judge all unrighteousness. And that means that he's obligated to judge us and to make matters worse. If that wasn't bad enough, There is absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. In fact, even your attempts to save yourself, you're just digging the hole deeper. You're condemning yourself even more. But the good news is that Jesus has done it for you. He did for you what you could never do for yourself. And because of what he did, now here are the implications for every area of your life moving forward. So in an expository sermon, we seek to present the problem which is inherent to the text. So the text will reveal this. The text itself is presenting an issue, a problem. And then we bring in other verses from other places and other examples to show that that problem is actually much bigger than people have ever thought or realized. So for uh, just a quick example, like for pride, for example, pride isn't just a bad habit. It's not just obnoxious. It is those things, but it's actually much worse than that. In fact, it is the very sin for which Satan was cast out. Lucifer was cast out of heaven. It it is the very thing. And not only that, it's much worse than that. Not only is it something outside of you, 
but it's actually something that's, that has gotten its claws into your heart. It has interwoven itself. It is inside of you. And unless something is done, not only will it destroy your life, but ultimately it will lead you to the same fate as Lucifer. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do to stop it or turn it around. But there is one. There is one. There is another one, another man who lived a life of perfect humility, lived a life of perfect grace. And he took your place. He took the judgment that you deserved so that you could be set free. And as a result, if you really understand what he did for you, if you really grab hold of it by faith and make it your own, the result of that will be that you will be filled with, on the one hand, incredible humility because you will know that you're no better than anybody else. You're a sinner saved by grace. And on the other hand, it will fill you with incredible confidence. See, those are the, those are the consequences. In other words, one of the greatest tools for preaching compelling sermons that help people to, to move towards Jesus is to start this way, by showing them that there is a problem. Showing them there's a problem, there's a conflict that the text brings up. There's something wrong with the world that the text is addressing. And then helping them to see how that problem is actually bigger than they've ever thought it was, and it is absolutely destroying them. But Jesus is the only solution, the perfect solution. And finally, what it means for their lives moving forward. That kind of sermon will always be compelling. It will always keep people's attention. And here's part of the reason, because it has a progression, like those movies that people watch for three hours, right? It has a progression. It's moving somewhere. It's going somewhere. Furthermore, it doesn't just, it, it also, it does justice to the scriptures. It points people to Jesus, showing how he is the hero and the solution to the problems that we have. Beyond accurately explaining the text, there are three parts of a sermon that make it particularly compelling. Three elements of a sermon that are particularly helpful in making it compelling. And, and because of that, those three elements are worthy of our attention and greater care. Those three elements are your introduction, your illustrations, and your conclusion. The introduction, the illustrations, and the conclusion. Oftentimes, um, these are the times when you've really got people's attention. Maybe they kind of drowse, they get drowsy. You've got their attention at the beginning. If they get drowsy, you know, illustrations are kind of like opening the windows in a stuffy room. And then finally, the conclusion is where you land the plane. So the, your introduction is where you introduce the tension, where you talk about why this matters and why they need to listen, as Nate was saying before. Illustrations, like I said, they're like opening the windows in a stuffy room. If you've ever been in a stuffy room or in a car, you know what it's like. You start to get drowsy. It starts to feel warm. And you can barely stay awake. But an illustration is like opening the windows and letting some fresh air into the room. Illustrations essentially give people a break. They give people a break from the hard work of listening and a chance to kind of come up for air, so to say. When you choose illustrations, these are just my opinions. You can take them for what they're worth. When you choose illustrations, two things I would say. Always seek to choose illustrations that people can relate to. Because if they can't relate to them, if there's just something about your life that you can relate to but they can't relate to them, it's not going to be as powerful and helpful. On the other hand, too, also when you tell stories... My advice is try to find stories in which you are not particularly the hero. Um, look for stories that don't necessarily make you look good. Make someone else the heroes in your story. A basic structure to follow with illustrations to make your point is this. Make your point, illustrate your point, make it again, illustrate it again. 
If you follow that pattern, you'll be doing all right. Make your point, illustrate it, make it again, illustrate it again. When it comes to your conclusion, the best thing I can tell you is, for the love of God, just land the plane, okay? You need to stop talking at some point. And this is why, for my purposes, I write my conclusion before I write the body of my message. I, I start with an outline, and then I, I, I start by writing my, um, my introduction first, and then I write my conclusion, and then I fill in the rest of the outline. And the reason I do that is because I have found that if I don't do that, my conclusion will end up being too short. I'll rush the conclusion rather than giving it the time and the care that it deserves because of how important it is. It's the last part of your message. It's where you make your final conclusions and you send people off with something. And here's, here's one last piece of advice. Even if you don't write out your whole message, like I know a lot of you are not manuscriptors, but uh, I would say this. I think it's helpful to at least write out your introduction and your conclusion because of how important those are to the message. So the reason it's possible to have a sermon which is doctrinally accurate and yet crushingly, painfully boring is because it's possible to say things that are true but not show people why it matters for them. If you haven't done that, you haven't successfully built a bridge between them and the scriptures. The purpose of a message is not just to make the truth clear and understandable to the mind, It's to make it gripping and real and compelling to the heart. Thank you. Yeah, amen. Amen. You know, it always surprises me how we preachers, we're able to take the most exciting, compelling, amazing story in the world, and with our bad preaching, we can turn it into something that's boring, uninteresting, and seemingly irrelevant. So may the Lord just raise us up to be Bible teachers and preachers that are able to communicate this as it really truly is, living, powerful, always relevant, and connected with the ins and outs of our daily lives. So thanks, uh, Nick, for that. You could check out the show notes that'll bring you to um, his own church where you can listen in on, uh, I guess, his more regular Bible teaching if you're interested. Okay, so here is a review um, that's from the American (laughs) iTunes or the Apple account. Uh, This one goes all the way back to July. Uh, This is from uh, Leo Garcia. He says this, what a legacy this is to continue to teach the next generation how to properly expose and explain what the Bible teaches. This is so needed in this generation. Thanks, Leo. You know what? I agree. (laughs) Um, It's for the next generation. It's for this present generation. Yeah, we're really passionate and enthusiastic about, um, yeah, I love it, exposing and explaining. Um, We're not there to make things up about the Bible. We only want to just show what truly is there. Um, And so I hope that this podcast works towards that aim. And uh, that's our goal. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. Uh, We want you to benefit in your personal Bible reading and your public proclamation of Scripture. Um, So, Leo, we'll send you a sticker. (laughs) And um, everyone else, keep those reviews coming. Um, You'll get stickers, and you'll help us get this news out. All right. God bless you. Bye. Have a good 2019.